You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. New Song Students, I'm ready to get into the Word. Y'all ready? Let's get into the Word. I believe God's here. That worship was good. My mind's ready. I hope you're ready. I believe God wants to speak, so get out whatever you need to do to get the most out of this message tonight. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you haven't been in a while, we're currently in a series called Real Life. Look at your neighbor. Say Real Life. We're in a series called Real Life, and in this series, we are looking at the things we do. Somebody say, the things we do. We're looking at the, there's action involved. The things we do in order to experience real life. Now, some of y'all are like pinching yourselves. You're like, I think I'm alive right now already. Like, what are you talking about real life? Well, yes, you are alive. But according to scripture, before you met Jesus, you were actually dead. You were spiritually dead. And so when we come to Jesus, he gives us life. It's almost like life 2.0. You're already living, but you're going to die one day. And when you come to Jesus, the Bible tells you that you're born again. You're a new creation, and he gives you life. Now, unfortunately, not every Christian is experiencing this real life that he's already given them. Like, they already have it, but they're not experiencing it fully. And and in the same way that an athlete or a musician trains and practices to get better and stronger at what they do, as Christians, there's things that we can do, spiritual disciplines, in order to help us experience this kind of real life. You guys following with me? Does that make sense? And so this is what this series is all about. We've covered a ton of ground so far. So if you've missed any of it, we got a podcast. Go check it out. It's great stuff. But just to recap you really quickly, in week one, somebody say week one. In week one, we talked about the most important thing about spiritual disciplines, and that's the who and the why we do them. And it's not so that you can walk around like a Pharisee and be flexing your Holy Ghost muscles in front of people. Like, look at how, look at how holy I am. Look at, look at how much I pray. Look how much, I pray an hour a day. That's not, that's not what spiritual disciplines are for. They're not so you can walk around and flex your Holy Ghost muscles, even though those are good to have, right? No, we do spiritual disciplines because Jesus is the answer. Amen? We don't do them for any other reason other than to know Jesus more and to look more like him. That's why we do them. And then week two, my boy Eric dropped a word on surrender and submission. It was so good. And we really talked about how all of the other disciplines, they start at a place of surrender and submission. They all start with a place of God, your way is better. I trust you above all else. I'm following you. It's not my will, it's your will. And then last week or two weeks ago, we looked at fellowship. Did y'all like that one? That was, that was my favorite one so far. We looked at fellowship and how there's a spiritual discipline of being the church. And it's more than just going to church. It's learning how to be and become the church. That is a spiritual discipline. We talked about uh, having some yoked up ribeyes. Y'all remember that? If, if you know, you know. You had to be there. But, um, but we want you guys to have some yoked up spiritual muscles. And I'm telling you, when I look at you New Song students, I see you guys serving on the weekend. I see some yoked up spiritual gains. And so proud of y'all. Look at your neighbor. Say, you looking good tonight. Look at the other neighbor that you just ignored and say, in the spirit. You're looking good in the spirit. 
You're looking good in the spirit. I see you, fam. Okay, if you got a Bible with you, you're taking notes, you're following along, we're gonna start off in Numbers chapter 11 tonight. Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11. And we're not gonna stay here too long. I really just wanna use this story to kind of like catapult us into our theme for tonight. So what's the context of Numbers chapter 11? Well, it's probably one that you're pretty familiar with. We talk about it a lot here at church because honestly, if I'm just being honest, uh, it's an easy target. <laughs> it's an easy target. In the context of this passage, we find the children of Israel. How many of you have heard of the children of Israel before? You probably know exactly where I'm going. This is after Egypt, big Egypt. They've just left. You know, they're in the wilderness. They're doing their thing. They're, they're, they've got their somewhat fearless leader named Moses leading them. And they're following God. They're in the wilderness. They've just been freed from Egypt. But how many of you know in the story, they start to complain. They start to, they start to whine a little bit. They start to be like, man, this is such a waste of time. God, Moses, why'd you got to free me from slavery? It's so dumb. And they start complaining a little bit. And this is where we pick up in the story. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Here's what it says. It says, then the foreign rabble, we'll talk about that in a second, the foreign rabble, who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. Yeah. And the people of, East, uh, of Israel also began to complain. Who's the foreign rabble? Well, what it's saying there is when the children of Israel were actually freed from Egypt, there were actually some Egyptians that were like, hey, this actually looks kind of good. Like, I'm tired of Egypt, so I'm going to go with you guys. Yeah. So they went with the children of Israel. But over time, the people of Egypt, they started to miss Egypt. They started to miss their old life and the comforts that came with being in Egypt. And so they started to complain. And guess what happened? The children of Israel, they heard that. And they were like, hey, yeah, you're right. I do miss that over there. I miss that life back there. And this is not in my notes at all, but that'll just preach right there about the people you surround yourself with. I'm telling you, they have an impact on the way you follow God and the way you see God. So they start complaining. Look at this. What are they talking about? Oh, for some meat. They exclaimed, we remembered the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all of the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted. That's just some random stuff to be missing, right? Like they didn't mention grapes or apples or any fruits. What the heck? But now our appetites are gone. All we see is manna. So they're complaining. In this moment, we got God's people in the middle of literally being miraculously provided for by God. Like, it's not just like Moses is like, hey guys, come on, let's like look at the bright side of life. No, they're literally seeing God do things right in front of their eyeballs. Like, they're seeing smoke come down from heaven, a pillar of fire. Every morning when they wake up, there's food for them on the ground. It's like, like Uber Eats in biblical times. It's crazy. Moses is hitting rocks and water is coming out. Like, crazy stuff is happening, New Song students. But in this moment, the children of Israel, are they've got a broken view. They've got a broken view of where their help comes from, where their comfort comes from. And really, they've got a little case of selective memory because they're like, dude, I miss, I miss Egypt because it was so awesome and they had all this good stuff and they're forgetting the fact that all of that good stuff that they're missing came at a really high price of being a slave, yes. right? So they've got a little selective memory right now. In fact, 
the issue that they were facing in this wilderness season for them is an issue that you and I face today. We still deal with this on a daily basis, and it's the issue of, this is the title of my message, Counterfeit Comforts. So write that down if you're taking notes, Counterfeit Comforts. This is what we're going to be talking about tonight, but before we get into it, let's pray. Let's just get our minds right, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father God, I thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for meeting us here. I love what your word says, where two or more are gathered in your name, you promise I am there in your midst. I'm right there. And so God, we, we come in tonight fully confident knowing you are here. You are with us. And I thank you. You know every single heart in the room. I don't know every single heart, but you do. You see every heart. And I pray that you would speak this word to every single student, every leader in this room, what they need to hear, when they need to hear it, how they need to hear it. We invite you in to speak to us. Open our ears, open our eyes in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, okay. So in week one, we're going to do a little recap, part two in this message, lots of recaps. But in week one of this series, if you remember, we talked about how there's actually two types of categories for spiritual disciplines. This, anybody remember? We, there's a first category of spiritual disciplines, and they're the disciplines of engagement. And then there's another category of spiritual disciplines, and they're called disciplines of abstinence. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? Yes. Engagement versus abstinence. What am I talking about? Well, um, we, we talked about how disciplines of engagement are spiritual disciplines that we do that directly, uh, draw, they directly feed our spirit, right? So these are things like we've talked about already, being submitted to God, getting in his word. We talk about that all the time at New Song Church, being connected to God's word, praying, uh, fellowship. We talked about two weeks ago is a spiritual discipline of engagement, directly feeds your spirit. But then there's other types of spiritual disciplines, and I feel... Like God's leading us to look at the disciplines of abstinence tonight. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Spiritual disciplines of abstinence. What in the world does abstinence mean? What am I talking about when I say this? Well, I love the way Dallas Willard defines disciplines of abstinence. Look at this. He says this. In the disciplines of abstinence, we abstain. What does that mean? That means like you avoid for a certain time. You're avoiding things. We abstain to some degree and for some time from the satisfaction of what we generally regard as normal and legitimate desires. Normal desires include our basic drives or motivations, such as those for food, sleep, bodily activity, companionship, curiosity, and sex. Oh, we're getting there. But check this out. Our desires for convenience, having things right when we want them, comfort, Material things, stuff that you have, popularity, reputation, fame, variety, all of those things are considered under this heading. Now, this last sentence is by far my favorite, and I think the most important part of this. Look at this. Keep in mind that the practice of abstention or abstaining does not imply that there's anything essentially wrong with these desires as such. Doesn't mean that things that you like or evil or bad necessarily. That's what I want to talk about tonight. In fact, my goal for tonight's not really to just like give you a list of, hey, these are spiritual disciplines of abstinence and this is what they are and this is how you do them. 
Because if we're being honest, they're all kind of simple. It's simply you avoiding things. And each discipline avoids something different. So I'm not necessarily going to tell you what they are specifically and how to do them. I want to tell you God's heart behind spiritual disciplines of abstinence. And it's important to know God's heart because if, if we're not careful, we can think that God inviting us to do spiritual disciplines of abstaining is God punishing us. But can I tell you, that's not God's heart for spiritual disciplines of abstinence. Like God's not up in heaven and he's like, oh, you like that thing right there? You like doing that thing? You're grounded. You need to, you need to give that thing to me right now. That's not God's heart. God's, not, God's heart is not like you need to walk around and anytime you start to like something a little too much, that you're in trouble with God and you're grounded and you just need to give it up all the time. That, that's not necessarily what God's heart is for spiritual disciplines of abstinence. In fact, write this down. If you're taking notes, abstinence is not a punishment from God. It's actually a gift that helps you discover who and what is really first in your life. And nobody amened me for that. So I'm going to say that again because that was really good. Abstinence is not a punishment from God. It's a gift that helps you discover who and what is actually first in your life. There we go. Thank you. Now, in Numbers chapter 11, we picked up with the children of Israel. And where are they? They're in the desert. They're in the wilderness. And actually, I think if we look at this with the lens of spiritual disciplines, I think they're in the wilderness and they're in a season of abstinence. Like they're in a season right now where the comfort they used to be used to and the food that they used to eat and all the the things that they're complaining about right now, they don't have anymore. And they're actually in this season of abstinence where they're having to come to come to terms with the fact that God actually isn't their main comfort, right? And this is what God is trying to do in this season. He's trying to get them to see, hey, I'm actually your provider. And, you know, they're in the wilderness in this, in this time, and it wasn't supposed to be 40 years. That was kind of their fault. It was just supposed to be a season. I mean, if you think about it, if God really wanted to punish the children of Israel with the wilderness, then why would he want to take them to the promised land, right? Like, like God's not against us enjoying his creation and enjoying things, right? It was just supposed to be a season of abstinence to get them to see who's really their source, In fact, this is what God was trying to get them to see. It's Philippians 4.19. This truth that says, and my God will supply every need of yours. Does that just say only spiritual needs? No, 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 no. It says every single one of your needs that you have, God wants to supply that according to, is it your riches? No, no, no. According to his riches and glory in Christ. That's a good verse, by the way. You might need to memorize that. And this is what God was trying to get the, the, the children of Israel to understand in the wilderness, the fact that, guess what? I'm actually the one who is your comforter. I'm your provider. In fact, they go all the way to this place called Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. He meets with God. God gives him the famous Ten Commandments, right? And the first commandment actually lets us know God's heart about wanting to comfort us. I want to show this to you. God doesn't want to comfort you, and he doesn't want you to only come to him because, like, he thinks that melons and leeks and onions from Egypt are evil. That's, that's not his, that's not the thing. The issue is not things for God. The issue is what those things became to his people. The issue was not things. It was what those things became, and they became 
counterfeit comforts. You know what another name for a counterfeit comfort is? It's an idol. Yes. So look at this. Exodus 20, God says this to Moses when he gives him the commandments. He says, I'm the Lord your God. Who's the Lord your God? He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Then he goes into the commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Look at this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. In this passage, we find a very interesting side of God's character and his love for you. And that's the fact that, guess what? God is jealous. He's a jealous God. Anybody in here ever been jealous before? Come on. I know we're in church, but you ain't too holy. Come on. Raise your hand. You ever been jealous before? I'm talking like that deep jealousy. Like, oh. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm jealous. Like, if you got siblings, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say, um, it's Christmas Day. You guys are, oh, you already know. You already know where I'm going with this. It's Christmas Day. You guys are all opening your gifts, and you start to realize that your siblings are totally getting better gifts than you. And then what happens? You're like, oh, I'm so mad right now. You know what I'm talking about? That jealousy, right? Now, It's been a while since I've shared this story, so I thought I'd share it again. Um, But there was a season in my life, or a a day, a moment in my life, where I got real jealous, y'all. Like, real jealous. Like, I was like, I'm going to punch somebody. And Jackson is not a fighter. I'm a hugger. But in this moment, I was a fighter. I was like, who can I punch right now? But this this story involves young Jackson Young Haley, if you don't know, Haley's my wife. We met in band camp. We were band nerds. And um, the rest was history. That's just what happens at band camp. What happens at band camp stays at band camp. Anyway, so we dated. She was my first girlfriend ever in high school. We dated for a year, and then we broke up. And um, I know, but it's okay. We got married. So, and we got a kid now. That's right. So we broke up, and there was a season where we were both dating other people in band, and they were kind of like the rebound boyfriend and girlfriend, which I just feel bad for people who are the rebounders. Like, it's not your fault, people. I mean, people are just hurt, and they're sad, and they don't know why. You know what I mean? So we both had these rebound relationships, and one day, it's after after school, and we're getting ready for practice, and so I'm like running because I don't want to be late, and I'm going down the band hall, and I see Haley, and this other dude that we're not even going to mention, right? So, and they're doing like the typical high school couple pose where he's like, you know, up against the wall like this. And Haley's just like, you know, snuggled in, just looking at him. And I'm walking, I'm walking down the band hall. Haley and I make eye contact. And she, she knew what she was doing here. We made eye contact, and the second we did, she went in for this hug and kissed this dude on the cheek right as I'm passing by them. I mean, it was, dude, it was, it was elegantly timed. Like, props to you, Haley, because it was elegantly timed. But I walked by, y'all, and I'm telling you, I was like, 
I'm going to punch this dude. And I've never punched a guy before, but I'm about to punch somebody. I was so jealous. I've never been more jealous in my entire life because I saw that and I thought, man, she's mine. Which is funny because we weren't dating. She totally wasn't mine. But I was like, get your hands off my future wife, y'all. Anyway, anyway, I got really jealous in this moment, like really jealous. And I think sometimes uh, we think that our jealousy is the same as God's jealousy, but it's different. It's different because in, in that moment, you know, we tend to get jealous about things that we think belong to us when they really don't. We just kind of covet them, preach that. But it's different with God because guess what? You belong to God. In fact, if you're taking notes, write that down. You belong t- to God. You're not your own. Like, you're totally not your own. You belong to God, and so he actually has the right to look at you and have a jealous love for you. Look at this. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5 says this. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God talking right here. Before you were born, I set you apart. God did that. New Song students, who made you? God made you. And so check this out. God's not jealous because he wants to be a fun sucker up in heaven and keep you from doing whatever you want because he's God and and he's just a power-hungry dude. No. God is jealous because because you belong to him. Because he made you. And so the question is, if God is jealous for you and me because he loves me, right? Because he made me. What is it that we do that makes him feel this jealousy? What's the reason behind his jealousy? And in Numbers chapter 11, it's pretty easy to find out what the cause of God's jealousy is. It's when we run to other things, not necessarily bad things or evil things, but when we run to other things, counterfeit comforts to fulfill our purpose, our identity, to get our comfort, This is the thing that makes God jealous. It's when we make those things our source instead of him. Write this down if you're taking notes. An idol is anything that we put over God and look towards to meet our needs. And idols are counterfeit comforts. Write that down if you're taking notes. Idols are, what they are, is they are counterfeit comforts. Meaning, they give you comfort, but it's not the same as the comfort God wants to give you. It's not the same. You can get comforted by these things for some time, but you're always going to be looking for another counterfeit to start meeting your needs when God is like, hey, I'm trying to teach the children of Israel this, and if, I, if you would let me teach you this, I can actually fulfill all of your needs. Amen? And I think most of us, we look at the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 2, and we're like, come on, guys. You guys are being total losers. I would never do what you're doing. Like, like we, see, we see Moses go up to the top of the mountain and come back, and they're like already worshiping another god, right? They're already building a golden calf. And then we look at that, and we think, come on, guys. I would never have an idol in my life. Like, I would never go to church and then go home and worship something else, right? Right? But even though idols may look different today than they did in biblical times, I'm telling you, it's still a problem for you, and it's still a problem for me. And I love this quote. John Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory. (laughs) The human heart is an idol factory. We are really good 
at taking anything and everything, even good things, and just placing them a little too high in our hearts. I'm good at that. I'm good at taking good gifts from God and getting too excited about them and running to them and doing them too much in a way that I think that thing actually gives me happiness. And you do that too. It's no different. In fact, sometimes we look at the, the children of Israel complaining about manna, right? We see them complaining about the fact that God is providing for them. And, and you and I, we read these stories and we think, guys, you're being ridiculous. Like, don't be total losers. God's providing for you. It's right in front of your face. You should be grateful, right? We think these things. I would never let something like food be an idol for me. We think these things. I would never let that be an idol. But this is why we actually do spiritual disciplines of abstinence. Because the second you start to practice abstaining from something in your life, is the, is the, when you're going to get hit with the reality that that thing was probably a source of comfort for you. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, there's a, um, there's a spiritual discipline of abstinence called fasting. Has anybody ever practiced fasting before? If you've ever done it, then you know it sucks. <laughs> like it just, there's no, there's no way, I'm not going to fluff it up. There's no way around it. Fasting is hard. It's hard. What is fasting? Look at this. Dallas Willard says this about fasting. In fasting, we abstain in some significant way from food and possibly from drink as well. This discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. Look at this. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends on the pleasures of eating. In other words, what Dallas Willard is saying is, He's saying, oh, you're looking at the children of Israel and you think you'd be better and you'd be more grateful for manna? Well, you fast for a couple days and you see how you feel about food. He's saying, hey, when we, when we do spiritual disciplines of abstinence, it reminds us that there's a lot of counterfeit comforts in our heart. And this is why we do them. New Song students, God's not jealous about the fact that you're a human who has wants and needs. Like God's not mad at you for having needs, right? Yeah. He's jealous when we run to those things first. He's jealous when we let those things become the sole focus of our life. And disciplines of abstinence, what they do is they're a gift to us. Because they, they, when we practice them, it shows us, oh, I need, to, I need to make God my source in this area of my life. In fact, there's a story in Mark chapter 10. I want to read it to you. And it's about a time when Jesus invited a dude You've heard of him before. His name's the rich young ruler. And he invites this guy to actually practice a spiritual discipline of abstinence. I want to read this to you. Check this out. Look what it says. It says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and knelt down and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Jesus is like, hey, you know the things to do. You know the spiritual disciplines to do in your life. You must, uh, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely, cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler was like, teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. In other words, he's like, Jesus, do you see these spiritual gains right here? I've been doing these things since I was young pretty dope. And Jesus is like, look at what this says. Look at this. 
looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Okay, time out. Somebody say time out. I love so much this detail that Mark puts in before Jesus speaks. He says, Jesus felt genuine love for this man. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that anything that God is about to tell this man is not coming from a place of anger or punishment. It's coming from a place of genuine love, right? Okay, so with that in mind, what does Jesus tell this man to do? He says, there's still one thing you haven't done. He told them, go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler was like, ooh, skirt. I can't do that. And he walks away. It says that he fell to his face and he went away sad for he had many possessions. In this story, Jesus is inviting this rich young ruler to partake in a spiritual discipline called sacrifice. And you know, there's seasons in your life where Jesus might do the same thing to you, where the Holy Spirit might come to you and invite you to lay something down in your life that's a big deal, that brings you a lot of comfort and security. But look at this. In this moment, Jesus asks him to sacrifice, to abstain from something he has. Have you ever read this story before? And then you're kind of like scared to follow Jesus because like, what if he makes you give all of your stuff away one day? Is that just me? You're like, man, if I follow Jesus like too hard, he might invite me to like be a missionary in a third world country. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) But can I tell you, this is not what the story is about. Like, I think if we don't spend time figuring out Jesus's heart for this story, we can walk away from this passage thinking Jesus is telling us any money that we have is bad and we need to give it away. But can I tell you, that's not what Jesus is trying to teach us. Jesus is not trying to teach us that having possessions is evil and you can't follow him if you have things. In fact, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with this rich young ruler. Have you ever known somebody so well, you know exactly what to say to them to make them tick? This is what God is doing in this moment. Jesus knows exactly what he needs to invite this rich young ruler to sacrifice in order to... figure out where his priorities actually are, right? And, and we find ourselves all the time in a similar place to this rich young ruler. In fact, he literally, his counterfeit comfort in his life was part of his identity. Like that's who the book of Mark tells us and identifies this man to us through his stuff. And this is what we do. We so many times find these things in our lives and we, we, we put our identity to it We find our purpose in it. It becomes our main source of comfort. And then when God comes to us and is like, hey, would you be willing to sacrifice that for me? We're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that, God. And this is exactly what happens with the rich young ruler. This is exactly what an idol looks like in our life. It may not be a a carved image or a golden calf in your bedroom that you're bowing down to every night before you go to bed. That is creepy. Um, But this effect of having a counterfeit comfort in our life, it does the same thing. And here's what it does. Counterfeit comforts keep me from following Jesus. Write that down. Counterfeit comforts, what they do is they keep me from following Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can walk away from this story thinking Jesus is saying you can't have money and you can't follow me. But look at this. He's not saying you can't enjoy stuff and follow me. 
He's saying you can't serve stuff and serve me. And this is exactly what Matthew 6, 24 says. You've heard this before. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So it, it doesn't say you can't serve God and have wealth. It says you can't serve God and serve wealth. And in the story of the rich young ruler, we don't see a man who had wealth. We see a guy who served it. He didn't just have stuff. Stuff was everything about him. It was where he found his comfort, his security, his purpose. And Jesus actually gives him this gift of sacrifice. And he says, hey, will you be willing to give that up for me? And remember, it says he looked at this man with genuine love. And so in this moment, Jesus is saying this with a tone that the man actually missed. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Counterfeit comforts keep me from hearing Jesus. Counterfeit comforts in our life, they keep us from hearing Jesus. Because Jesus had a tone in his voice, Mark lets us know, of genuine love for him. But he didn't hear the genuine love in his tone, right? He didn't hear that. All he heard was, you need to give up what you have. And you know, tone is really important when you're communicating with people. Like words are important, but how many of you know the way you say words is just as important? Have you ever needed to say, uh, like, I'm sorry to somebody and you didn't want to? So you like went up to them and you're like, I'm sorry. How many of you know, when you're really sorry, it sounds way different, right? When you're really sorry, it sounds completely different because there's a tone to it. And, and I think most of the time we miss the tone that Jesus is saying in Scripture all the time. Because it says, hey, the tone that Jesus was saying this with was a sensitive and powerful, genuine love for this man. And I love that detail that the Bible gives us. It's super important uh, because there was a tone to his voice. He was really what he was trying to communicate to this man was, hey, I know that this is a big ask, but what I have for you in following me is so much better. It's so much better than all of the stuff you could ever hoard for yourself. And if you'd be willing to lay that down, even just for a season, not saying you're never going to have money ever again, but if you would just be willing to sacrifice this thing for a season, I'm telling you, your life would never be the same. This is what Jesus is inviting this man to. This is what he's inviting him to, and we do this all the time. Counterfeit comforts, they keep us from hearing the tone in Scripture. Because Matthew 6.33 is an amazing promise, and it says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You do that part, and look at this. All things, somebody say all things. All All things will be added to you. So when other things have the first place in my heart, I don't hear that promise correctly. All I hear is that I need to uh, lay down everything that I have, and that's really hard, and I don't want to do that. But I don't hear God telling me, hey, you seek my kingdom first. You won't have to worry about anything. Like, think about that kind of promise. You seek my kingdom first, you can still do other things and enjoy other things, but everything will be added to you. Everything you need, I will provide. Counterfeit comforts keep me from following Jesus and they keep me from hearing Jesus. And this is why God invites us to practice 
disciplines of abstinence. In fact, write this down. When we give up counterfeit comforts, we receive true comfort. And as we get ready to close, uh, I want to I invite you. What spiritual discipline of abstinence do you think the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to do in this season? You know, we're getting ready as a church to do something we do every single year at the beginning of the year. It's where we take a church-wide fast. And we invite everybody in the church to fast something. I'm talking food specifically, not just like social media. I'm talking food, like doing something. And when we practice seasons of fasting, what that does is it reminds ourselves that God is my source, not food. When we, when we practice tithing and giving sacrificially, something our whole church is doing this weekend, something that I'm challenging you to do, when we practice that kind of gift, you know what that teaches us? That teaches us that God's actually my provider, not money. God's actually my comfort, not the stuff that I have. When we practice the discipline of sacrifice, maybe for you, all you can sacrifice is your sleep. Like maybe you could sacrifice some sleep by getting up early and spending a little time with God before school instead of hitting snooze all morning. And you know what you do when you start to sacrifice something like that? You learn God's actually worth it. It's actually worth it to sacrifice a little bit of my sleep to meet with the presence of God before school. Like this is what, this is what spiritual disciplines of abstinence teach us. You can't, you can't learn something like that by just being stuck in a counterfeit comfort forever. It takes you intentionally taking that thing away for a season, not forever. Not, it's not saying that you need to give up. If you like to play video games, you just need to stop playing video games because you're a Christian now. That's not what God is asking you to do. But you know what he might be asking you to do? He might be asking you to give it away for a season. And I'm telling you, when you do that, there's things that God will teach you in that season. He teaches you what it means to be sustained by him. So New Song students, before we close, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes tonight.